Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Joshua chapter 7. We're going to be looking at the whole passage this morning. If you brought your Bible, you can follow along there. You can also follow along in the Pew Bible. You can follow along where it's printed free of charge for you in your bulletin. You can also pull out a phone and follow along there if you want. If you want to follow along, there's plenty of opportunities for you to do so. If you don't, then I guess you don't have to, and that's fine as well. We're just glad you're here. Welcome to Redeemer. Um, uh, my name's Sean Slate. I'm the pastor here, and we are so glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different other things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, it, uh, there's a little bit of fall in the air, so the pumpkin spice latte is back. Uh, you could be uh, taking some of those to the face and getting all amped up. Uh, you could be uh, having Gator Biscuits with Dave Parmley, our resident uh, Florida fan, uh, who surely would love to eat Gator with you at uh, some point this week. Uh, or you could try, be trying to put out that sofa fire down the street after last night. Uh, but you're not doing any of those things. It really is uh, great to have you this morning. And the reality is that there really is nothing better that you could do with your time uh, than worship Jesus and consider his claims upon your life and uh, reflect upon the kindness of God and his salvation. And so I do want to thank you for joining us this morning. Welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Uh, Thanks for asking. Redeemer is a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally what we believe is that Jesus is God, he's the Messiah, and he's entered into the world uh, to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together in his name to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. And we love to watch football. We love to skateboard. We love to do all kinds of things together. But we really love uh, to read the Bible and pray together so that we can remind each other of the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And so as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University, Knoxville, and hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire earth, right? That's who we are. We're a people who are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest as we remind and as we reflect. And so to help us do that, we're in this series entitled Great is His Faithfulness, Reflections on the Book of Joshua. And I just want to start the way we've been starting each and every week so far is that this is a really difficult book. Uh, It is filled with failure. It is filled with conflict. It is filled with war. It is filled with judgment. And at many points, this book feels culturally distant. Uh, Some might say it feels so Old Testament, 
And we've especially felt that over the last few weeks. I mean, three weeks ago, we talked about this thing called circumcision. Last week, we talked about this thing called the judgment of God. And this week, we're going to keep going and we're going to think about the anger of God, right? Uh, But my hope for us in this is that whether we're coming to this church uh, filled with joy and excitement, or whether you're coming to this church uh, filled with fear and sadness and darkness, my hope for us is that we'll see over and over again through the book of Joshua that God is faithful, right? That God is faithful. And so what I want us to consider this morning uh, is the faithfulness of God uh, and his anger, right? The anger of God and God's faithfulness. So with that in mind, let's look together at Joshua chapter 7. But the people of Israel uh, broke faith in regard to the devoted things, For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not all the people, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. But do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from there from the people, and they fled before the men of I, and the men of I killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. Uh, They have stolen and lied and put them among uh, their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. And in the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall be near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire and all that he has. Because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord. And because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe and 
the tribe of Judah, was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, Uh, This is a hard, uh, if not troubling, word. And it's our prayer that in your kindness, uh, you would draw near to us. And that you would show us lovely things of you and of your faithfulness in your word. That you would teach us more and more of how you are faithful. And that as we see you, we in turn might be faithful to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think in order for us to understand this passage, I I think it's really important that we begin in the beginning. And you might remember the way the story of the Bible begins. It begins like this. In the beginning, uh, God made the heavens and the earth. And everything that God made was good. It It was very good. And in this world that God had made, he planted this garden, and that garden was lush, it was full, it was beautiful, it was right, it was good, and it was fruitful. And then into that garden, God made man, male and female. He made them after his image, he made them, and he placed them there at the center of the garden so that we might work with him and tend the garden with him and that we might bear fruit with him and that we might reflect his image throughout the entire world. And maybe most importantly, that is that when he placed us there in the garden, he placed us there so that we might dwell with him in the joy of his presence. And there in that garden, God knew us. And there in that garden, we knew him. And it was this glorious and gracious existence. The way the Bible describes this is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. And it says this, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, 
and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, I want you to think about this. God has made this beautiful garden. It's lush, it's full, it's beautiful. And he comes to his people and he says, all this I give you. Everything in this garden, it is yours. But there is one thing that is mine. There is one thing that is not yours, it is mine. So do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because when you do, you will die. So one day, the man and the woman were walking through the garden. And they saw this beautiful tree, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And listen to the way the Bible describes the action. Uh, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And when they heard the sound of God coming to them, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So as they're walking through the garden, they see this one forbidden, this one devoted thing. And they see it and they say, that's good, I want it, I desire it. And so they took it and they ate it and then they hid. And God comes to them and they're hiding. And then we know that the rest of the story is that they were then cast out of the garden. And because they disobeyed God or because they wanted the things of creation, the things of the garden more than they wanted the gardener, more than they wanted God, they were then cast out of that garden. And because life is only found with God, then spiritual and physical death have come to all of us because we now live outside that garden. And this broke God's heart, right? This broke God's heart because God's heart has always been to share his life of love with his people. And so God did something. God made this promise. And He found this man named Abraham, and he went to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to be your God, and you are going to be uh, my people. I'm going to be your God, and your children, I'll be their God too. And I'm going to give you this land, I'm going to give you this new garden so that we can live together in love once again. And that's what the promised land was all about. It was God's desire to restore his presence with his people in the new garden. And so the story of the Bible up to this point has been all about God leading his people back to himself. And so Israel begins to follow God and they follow him out of Egypt. They follow him through the wilderness. They follow God into the land and God says, the land is yours All this I give you. I provide everything for you. He gives them the land. He parts the Jordan. He sets them apart with a sign of circumcision. He reinstitutes his covenant of love with his people. He calls them to be faithful. He calls them to turn away from all their idols. He fights for them. He defeats all of their enemies at Jericho. And now we come to this part of the story, and here we are at the town of Ai. Spies have been sent out. The spies return, and they offer this good report. 
And they come back and they say, the land, it's ours. It's a, it's a small little town. These people are pretty insignificant. And so the Battle of Ai is sort of this look-ahead battle, sort of like the U.S. men's national team going up against Japan. They send the B team in, and uh, they get destroyed. And as you read the story, there's this confusing storyline going on, right? Because you'd be thinking, how could this be? I mean, God had promised the land. He promised his presence. How could they be defeated? And you see this tension kind of at work in Joshua's prayer in verse 7. Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say? When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And you feel the tension, right? I mean, he's saying, like, God, I, I thought you were with us. God, I, I thought your promises were strong and stable. And now we're a joke. We're a joke to all the nations. And you might be a joke as well. And then, and then notice God's response in, in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. That's a huge statement from God. He's saying to Joshua, he's saying, Joshua, get up. This is not my fault. It's actually yours. There is sin among you. And just like in the garden, sin cannot dwell in my land. And death has come upon you because sin is among you. Now, whether we like this or not, uh, the testimony of the Bible from Genesis all the way through to the very end is this. The wages of sin is death. Right? The wages of sin is death. And that's what I want us to consider this morning, that the wages of sin is death. And so we'll do it like this. Uh, we'll begin thinking about the wages of sin is death. And then we're going to move on and we're going to continue thinking about the wages of sin is death. And then we'll keep thinking about the wages of sin is death. Right, so we'll begin with the wages of sin is death. We'll move on to the wages of sin is death. We'll move on to the wages of sin is death. But first, the wages of sin is death. Now, despite the jokes uh, here, uh, I know none of us like this idea of sin and death. I don't like the idea of sin and death. You don't like the idea of sin and death. But here's the deal. Our likes and dislikes don't change reality. Our likes and our dislikes don't change reality. And I know that many of us think that no one has the right to tell us, uh, except for ourselves, what is right or wrong uh, for me. And I know uh, that many of us think that sin is just a primitive concept that is psychologically destructive uh, because it just creates guilt and shame within us. And so we like to avoid the words of sin. We like to avoid the concepts of sin. Uh, and so uh, I just want to say, though, that trying to avoid the word sin or the concept of sin hasn't stopped any of us from feeling guilty or filled with shame. It hasn't changed the fact that we still feel these things. 
And just because many of us have tried to free ourselves and others from these primitive concepts, we still haven't put any of our therapists out of work. And just because we don't like this idea of guilt and shame, and just because we've tried to get rid of God so that we can feel better about ourselves, this has not changed the fact that all of us still experience guilt. And all of us are still filled uh, with shame. Because we all know we have a moral responsibility to something. You might not think you have a moral responsibility to God, and we can put that aside for a minute, but we all have a moral responsibility to someone or to something that we exist to serve. It might be your boss. It might be approval. It might be money. It might be some body image. It might be some success in this world. It might be a loved one. And when you fail them, or when you don't measure up to their expectations, do you not feel like a failure? Do you not feel shame? Do you not feel uh, guilty? I mean, this is a little bit trite, but I want you to think about athletics with me. We have turned athletics into a moral uh, playing field. That, that we talk about failing we talk about judgment in these, in, these, in these games. And then we determine our worth and our value based on our success. Last night, 100,000 of us gathered in that stadium and we demanded success. And we got it, you know. But we demanded it. We screamed at the top of our lungs at these 18 to 24-year-olds to get it right, and we criticized a man who gets paid a lot of money to play a game for some of his decisions at the end of the game. And then this morning, we went to ESPN, and ESPN ranked the performance to say who did the best this weekend. And then we shamed the not 10 top plays of the day. It's judgment and shame. We don't call it sin, but we heap people up with guilt and with shame over and over Again, And so we can call it whatever we want to call it, but we all feel it. And we all fall under the judgment of the one that we live to serve. And it actually kills us. We know that. It actually kills us. No matter who we serve, the wages of sin is death. And the God of the Bible is a God who calls us to live faithfully with him because... Apart from him, there is no life. He calls us to live faithfully with him because apart from him, there is no life. And the wages of sin is death. So what is sin? Well, our confession tells us that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. What does that mean? I mean, few of us know what any of those words mean. Uh, it feel, and, and for this concept that is so big and so hated, how could that definition be a definition that would cause so much ire? Well, simply put, we could say that sin is breaking God's commands. It's, it's disobeying God. And we see it clearly here in the text. Verse 1. Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. So what's the problem? I mean, Israel took some of the devoted things. Well, 
It's a problem because when Israel was going into the battle at Jericho, God had clearly said to them over and over again, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, uh, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. And so God was really clear to the people. He said, look, I'm giving you the land. I'm giving you everything in the land, just nothing from Jericho. Don't take anything from Jericho, none of the silver, none of the gold. And so what did Achan do? Verse 21, he took the silver and he took the gold. Now, this is fascinating because you need to think about this passage in light of the whole biblical story. And I want you to think about what's happened here is that God has brought Israel into the new garden. He's given them everything, just not the devoted things. And he says to them, if you take the devoted things, you will surely die. Now, does that sound familiar? See, what's happening is that Achan is repeating the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. That very same pattern is at work. I'm not sure if you heard it, but listen again to verse 21. Uh, When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak of Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now, do you see this pattern? He, He says he saw, he coveted, he took, And then he hid, just like Adam and Eve, who saw the fruit. They desired it. They coveted it. They took it. And then they hid. It's not just them. If you think about this pattern, it also went to King David. King David, who was freely given the kingdom of God. He looks out his window and he sees Bathsheba. And he sees her, he desires her, he covets another man's wife, he takes her, and then what does he do? He hides. It's not just them. It's all of us. I would assume all of us know this pattern way too intimately. Uh, We're like Dory, we see something shiny, we want it, we desire it, we take it. We're ashamed of it, we hide it. Years ago, I used to have the, the, the privilege, a friend of mine is a pastor up in New York City, and he would go away for vacation, and so he would let me come up, and I would get to preach at his church, and they would go away, and I'd get their apartment for two weeks. It was this, this great gift for us, probably not as great for their congregation, but we, my family, got to go up. We got to play in the city. We got to have a good time. They had their house for us. We got to play with all their kids' toys and all that sort of stuff. So we went up there. We played. We had a great time. We get on the train. We come back home. And I'm uh, unloading all the suitcases, I'm unpacking uh, my children's stuff, and as I'm unpacking my children's things, uh, I found an iPhone in uh, one of my children's bags. And this was before children were born with iPhones, and uh, and so my children at the time didn't have an iPhone, and so uh, I began to think, where did this iPhone come from? And I remember that my friends had left their phone on the counter so they could go on vacation and not be bothered. That was the phone in the bag. And so I went looking for one of my children and I couldn't find him or her. 
you know, uh, I couldn't find him or her anywhere. And so uh, I went down into the basement and found him or her hiding. And I said uh, to him or her, where, you know, uh, I found this phone. Where, where did this phone come from? Well, I, I saw it and I wanted to play with it. So I took it. But why'd you hide it? And why are you down here in the basement? Because I didn't want you to know. My point is that from a very early age, this pattern is at work in all of us, right? We, we see, we covet, we desire, we take, and we hide. Now, the problem is that uh, we can't hide uh, from God, right? God, uh, he sees us, and he sees us because he loves us. We often think of him seeing us as the eye of Sauron, just scanning, looking for enemies, looking to you know, get at us. But our God is different. Our God sees us because he loves us. And his eye is always on that which he loves. And so what he's doing is he's trying to root out those things in our lives that actually keep us from loving him. So it was sinful uh, for Achan to take these devoted things. But what's more important on this topic is that what these sinful things reveal about our hearts. You see, these sinful actions merely reveal what we actually love. They reveal what we believe in and what we trust in. And so the sinful things aren't so much the real issue. It's what those sinful things reveal. And what do those sinful actions reveal? They reveal that we all struggle to love God. We all struggle in our hearts to love him. And that's the point in verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. They broke faith. The way this whole thing is described is they broke faith in regard to the devoted things. And what I want you to see here is that sin isn't just a checklist of things that you do or don't do. It's not like there's a checklist of for, the, okay, my life with God is complete, right? Uh, but our sin is actually a breaking faith with God. And this word breaking faith is the word the Bible uses to describe adultery, that our sin is adultery, that it's actually personal. And this is why I think the best definition of sin is actually pretty simple. It's giving God the bird. That's what sin is. It's giving God the bird. It's saying to God, you have no authority in my life here. You have no authority over those things. I do not want you to have any part of my life in this place. It's, I, I love something else. I want something else. I want something more than you. And this is why uh, Achan's sin was so horrible. Because Achan looked at the wealth of Canaan, and he decided that he wanted the wealth of Canaan more than he wanted the things of God. Now, here's what's really interesting in this passage, is that in that moment when the Israelite Achan broke faith with God, he became a Canaanite and he suffered the same fate as the Canaanites. 
And here's the purpose of this story. The purpose of the story and where it fits in the book of Joshua is to contrast the Israelite Achan with the Canaanite Rahab. You might remember Rahab, the prostitute, who was a Canaanite. And you remember the story. What was it? She, she saw and she heard about the power and the glory and the goodness of God. And when she saw it, uh, she desired all of God's promises. And so what did she do? She took the spies into her home. And then what did she do with the spies? She hid them. Think about Achan, the Canaanite. He sees the thing, things of Cana. He, he desires them. He covets them. He takes them. He hides them. And what we see is the opposite. We see in Achan that the wages of sin is death. Life apart from God is death. But in Rahab, we see, yes, the wages of sin are death. But the gift of God is life with him. The story then begins to slow down and we see Joshua uh, calling all of Israel together and then slowly their sin begins to get rooted out. Judah is called, the Zerahites are called, then Zabdi, then Achan. And a tough passage, but look at verse 24. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and his daughters and his oxen, his donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones and raised over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, meaning the Valley of Trouble. And Achan sounds like trouble. Achor is trouble. God says, you brought trouble upon your, uh, you and your people. There's a lot here, but I want to say that the most important thing is this. This passage is troubling. And it is meant to be troubling. Right? That's the point of the passage. Because sin and its consequences are troubling to us and to God. And so God says, I want you to put up these memorial stones because these memorial stones were meant to be a reminder to all of Israel forever that whenever you saw these stones, they would say loud and clear, sin does not belong in the garden of God. Because sin only brings trouble. That's what this is saying. Now what's sad is that if you follow the story of Israel throughout the Old Testament, Israel then went on and they continued in the pattern of Achan. You'll remember they made a decision. Uh, we don't want God to be our king. We want a king like all the other nations. They wanted the wealth of the other nations. They wanted the power of the other nations. They turned away from their God and they began to be a people who oppressed the poor. They were filled with injustice and they turned away from him. And that's the rest of the Old Testament. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you get to this book that's at the very end and it's this book called Hosea. And if you've read the book of Hosea, it's this allegory. And it's an allegory about Israel as the unfaithful wife 
right, who has committed adultery against God, her husband. And uh, you would read that and you would immediately begin to think that, that God, uh, the husband, would crush his wife under the weight of his anger. What happens in the book is God says, no, I'm going to set out to woo the one that I love back to myself so that we might dwell in the garden of my love forever. And so as you read the book, God's lamenting the unfaithfulness of his bride. And then he says this, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. This is amazing. This valley of Accor that was supposed to stand as a symbol forever, that the wages of sin is death becomes a door of hope. It becomes this door of hope. And he says, I'm going to woo my bride back to myself that she might love me and know of my love and we might dwell together once again forever. Just as it was when she came out of the land of Egypt with such joy at my salvation for her and my love for her. And this is huge because the Valley of Accor, which was supposed to serve as a sign of the wage of sin is death. And then we think about our own lives and we think, the wages of sin is death, and I'm a sinner. Are the wages of my life death as well? Is the valley of Accor all I have, or is there a door of hope? Where would that door of hope come from? And there's this little hint at the very last of Joshua chapter 7, and it says this. The Lord turned from his burning anger. The Lord turned from his burning anger. And what I want you to see here is that after God's judgment was carried out, his anger was satisfied. And it was over. Now some of you might be saying, well, how is that hopeful? Well, think about this. Achan's death removed God's anger from God's people. Now many years later, the door of hope is offered. And then many years later, that door of hope is opened. And something amazing happens. There is a man, another man, not Achan, but another man who is from the tribe of Judah, from the clan of Zerah. And his name is Jesus. And he is the son of God. And he's not guilty like Achan, but he is the righteous one. And that righteous one is one who then goes to the cross to endure the anger of God for the sins of God's people. And in doing so, God's anger is then turned away. And this is what Paul is getting at when he said, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is the grand story of the Bible, that, that Jesus actually satisfies the anger of God. And when his anger is satisfied, it is turned away, and he is angry no more. This morning, we've been saying over and over again that the wages of sin is death. And that's true. The wages of sin is death. And that's exactly why Jesus died, to satisfy the anger of God. And he satisfied the anger of God for our sins. And this is why Paul goes on to say then that the wages of sin is death. There's no period there. The wages of sin is death, 
but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life with Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is why, as Christians, we're not really afraid to talk about sin. We're not bothered by this concept of sin. It's why we're no longer oppressed by our guilt or by our shame, because Jesus has borne it. He's borne the guilt. He's borne the shame. It is done, and God is no longer angry with us. Because by faith in Jesus, we receive all of his righteousness. We're right before God. We're loved by God. We belong to God. And therefore, we give ourselves to him. And we give ourselves to him freely because there is nothing in all of this world that would love us the way God has loved us. And that's the point of this table. Because as we come to this table, we see, right, the body and the blood of Jesus. And the body and blood of Jesus, they serve as signs just like those stones back in the valley of Achor. And those signs remind us that the wages of sin is death and that we deserve to die for our sins. It's true. It's all true. But it goes beyond that. Because unlike those stones, the table becomes this door of hope. Because it points us to the life and the death of Jesus, the one who opens the door, that we might have life with God. It was his life that was given for ours. Jesus became the unfaithful sinner so that we might become the faithful bride of Jesus. And therefore, the call to pass, the call to table, is that we would trust Jesus once again. That we would love him and be faithful to him so that in him we might receive the free gift of his love.